You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. Dubbed the queen of gems, radiant pearls have been prized for thousands of years. While pearls attained classic status many decades ago, they have also been having a fashion moment recently. From fashion runways to red carpets to Instagram feeds, pearls have been capturing the jewelry zeitgeist spotted on both female and male celebrities. You can't speak about pearls without speaking about the Japanese pearl brand Mikimoto. More than a century ago, Kokichi Mikimoto succeeded in developing the world's first cultured pearl. Today, Mikimoto is the foremost producer of the finest cultured pearls and a global leader in exceptional design of jewelry crafted with these gems of the sea. My guest today on the luxury item is Kentaro Nishimura, Chief Operating Officer at Mikimoto America. Since 2005, Kentaro has played an integral role in Mikimoto's growth and development, serving in various purchasing and manufacturing operations roles. Kentaro leads Mikimoto U.S. operations in North, Central, and South America. He brings global expertise and strategic business planning and risk management experience, transforming the multi-million dollar global brand Mikimoto into a profitable, thriving operation. Welcome to the luxury item, Kentaro. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. You know, it seems like pearls are having their time to shine these days. In the past few years, Mm -hmm. pearls have been making appearances on some very stylish people on the red carpet and fashion runways. You know, designers like Dolce & Gabbana, Prada, Mm -hmm. Tom Ford, Dior, Versace and Chanel have been showing pearls on the catwalk. It seems like pearls have been an underserved market. What's driving the resurgence? I mean, I think historically, uh, pearls has always been ultimate gem. Um, you know, we have ancient uh, documents dating back to Roman times about like Persian Gulf as a home of pearls. And if you go to Mikimoto Pearl Museum in Japan, mm-hmm. you'll find pearl jewelry from Roman era. And, you know, historically, uh, pearls are not just for women. You know, you'll see kings and queens equally dressed with pearls and you know, like if you Google Maharajas, you'll see that all the pictures, most of them are dressed, you know, the kings are dressed in pearls. Mm-hmm. So with that said, I think in the recent years, um, people come to realize that pearls are genderless. Um, and, you know, we see that genderless trend, it's been going on. And people realize that, you know, pearls that used to be thought for more for women is actually genderless. And I think that's like the biggest reason um, pearls are getting traction right now kind of gives like a refreshed sense and appeal of genderless. And I, I think that's what people wants to do, uh, especially people with the, you know, um, the red carpet and, you know, those people. So um, I think that's the reason. And fashion trends are what's in the moment. And I think when times get extremely commercial or, you know, I think people revert back to genuine gems and pearls are a good example. And we tend to be successful, like during this recession too, um, you know, people kind of feels pearls are, you know, back to the basic, I guess. Right. And I think that with the, uh, the recent trend of genderless, you know, I think those two are what's driving the resurgence. And before we dive any further, I'd like you to talk a little bit about Mikimoto's founder, Kokichi Mikimoto. Mm -hmm. It was over a century ago that he created the world's first cultured Akoya pearl and essentially democratized the world pearl market. Mm -hmm. And at the time, the only pearls on the market were the rare natural ones. So what did Mikimoto see in the natural pearl market that motivated him to try and cultivate them? 
Yeah, so Kokichi, Kokichi Mikimoto, um, he was born back in 1858 in a harbor town um, of Toba. It's like in central Japan. And so when he grew up, as, you know, as he grew up, he's familiar with the natural pearls being harvested by the local pearl divers. And when, as a younger young man, um, he actually went to the um, trip to Tokyo and, you know, I think back then uh, there were no uh, steam trains yet in Japan, maybe in central Tokyo, but must have been a long trip there. But anyways, okay. um, he went to Tokyo and he actually saw lots of foreign tourists, tourists paying high prices for the pearls that was, you know, harvested or well, not harvested. You know, these pearl divers, you know, they basically dive down and into the ocean and open up Akoya pearls. And if they get lucky, they'll find these pearls. Um, and they were paying high prices for these. It, it was mostly foreign uh, tourists in Japan. I think they used to use it for more like medicine use as well. But that's when he realized that pearls are sold in uh, very expensive in Tokyo. And it stuck in his um his head and so eventually he became involved in a um, local association in his town which was responsible for arrangement of natural pearls for exhibitions and exports mm -hmm. and he was a perf perfectionist and as he get more uh, as he got involved in it he was very disappointed about the quality of the pearls that was sold into these markets and naturally, he decided to take it in his hands and solve the issue. So he dived into the uh, world of culturing the pearls himself. He started to experiment with cult culturing pearls in about 1890. And the first success he had was three years later. He was able to find four half-round pearls. And he was... Um, you know, he had like tens of thousands of oysters and he was trying it. And he basically have found four pearls, which wasn't even round. It took another, another couple of years, I think. Uh, I think it was 1905 uh, when he was able to find his first round pearls. So actually it took another uh, 12 years to, to get to the round pearls. And then eventually he was able to um, produce the pearls in larger quantity so that he can actually start selling and make business out of it. But from the start, it really took more than 20, 20 plus years to get to that state. And he actually went close to bankruptcy. So um, he was a challenger. Um, yeah. talk, talking about the actual process, you know, about how these cultured pearls are done. Basically, what we do is we would insert a small amount of tissue taken from the uh, lips of oyster along with the uh, round nucleus, which is made from um, the shell of a uh, pigtail shell, which is taken from Mississippi River. Hmm. Yeah, it's a freshwater uh, um, you know, uh, shell from Mississippi River, which we take it and you know, make a round nucleus out of. And we put the tissue and that nucleus into um, the oysters. And basically what the tissue does is it secretes the substance to form around the nucleus and it's called pearl sacs and it develops the nacre around the sphere. Basically what it does is it's trying to protect the uh, body from the spheres and it 
makes this uh, pearl sac. You know, when you see the mother of pearl or inside of the shell shells, it's it's um it's almost like pearls, right? With the luster. Right. It's basically that um the lip of oyster that's doing the job, and basically that's what's what we're trying to do with uh, culturing the pearls. And basically, he came up with this technique, and it it really took him twenty plus years to to find this process. I think it, it, the the desire for him to to really um, have a success in culturing pearls was um, was a huge one. Like you know, he he diligently worked on perfecting this uh, this technique. Yeah, and I'm sure that didn't mm-hmm. go over too well with the natural pearl dealers and the pearl divers. <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, the Middle East, you know, Middle East, uh, the Gulf of Persia used to be um, the biggest natural pearl market, but um, you know, it eventually um, mostly died, and you know, perhaps it might have been because of uh, cultural pearl. I don't know, but either way, you know, I think they found the oil, which was a bigger economic right. value, so. But yeah, I think it had a huge, profound impact to the uh, the jewelry industry. I would say. And Mikimoto yes. has its own proprietary grading system for its pearls. Can you explain how Mikimoto's Akoya pearls are sourced and graded? So basically, the the source uh, we have our own farms. Basically, we try to um, produce the highest quality pearls, obviously, and you know, we but we also try to work and help local pearl farmers in Japan. What we do is we have a lab, um, Mikimoto Pearl Lab, and they it's a full scientific uh, research center. It does the research on pearls in Akoya oysters. They also grow baby oysters. And what they do is they would um, try to choose the best genes, you know, genetic wise, um, um, grow the best um, baby oysters and sell them to the lo- local pearl farmers. So they have the access to a superior oysters for culturing pearls. So it, it, it's like a collaboration between the local um, farmers and, and um, our own farms. We work together and it, you know, it takes Good four years from, uh, you know, we start from growing the, the baby oysters. So, you know, from that to culturing pearls, it, it takes like four years at least. But anyways, once we harvest the pearls, we go through several steps. And basically, by, uh, we sort by quality of the pearls, which uh, is the size, how big it is. Um, it's usually, we do it by millimeter. So it's mm-hmm. usually from like two, three millimeters to um, the biggest would be about, about 10 millimeters, um, which is less than a um, inch, half inch. Then we look at the surface. We try to make sure, um, you know, we basically grade the, the surface by its quality. We look at the shape. It has to be round for the better quality. So the more spherical round, it's better. We look at the luster. You know, that's how shiny, I guess, um, you call it, um, it is. And then look, we look at the color because the color, you know, we could have some that are more white, um, that are more pink, that are more yellow. And we would sort these because when we make a product, we have to make sure that the color matches. So when we have a strand of pearls, we make sure we have the same sizes, 
and same luster, um, same colors and same quality. Typically, uh, we, I would say maybe 50% of the harvest is usable for a, as a good jewelry um, quality. Mm-hmm. Mikimoto probably uses about the top 5%, I think. Um, I, I probably will depend by the year too, but um, we really select the, the best of the best pearls for our product. Yeah, and the Mikimoto name has mm. really become synonymous with superior quality. How mm. has the brand been able to maintain this stellar reputation as one of the most revered brands in the history of jewelry? You know, Mikimoto is a pure company. You know, we're very honest and uh, we're vertically integrated. So um, we're able to grow from our baby oysters to selling our product. This helps with the um, DNA of our company, which comes from the passion of our founder, Kokichi Mikimoto. So, you know, I kind of explained that he was about to go bankrupt and also it took him more than 20 years to perfect this technique mm-hmm. to um, be able to produce perfect pearls. So his passion is in the company's DNA and we have been, and we will always strive for the best quality. I think that is something that no other company could do. We have our research center. We do from you know, DNA analysis um, to making sure that the, um, the ocean environment is sound, so our oysters can produce uh, good quality pearls. You know, we, we start from there. So we are very proud of our product and we want to make sure what comes out of our production, what we provide to our customer is the best of the best product out there. And that that's not just, we're not just talking about the uh, pearls, but it, it's every part of um, our product. So our um, factory, we have a jewelry factory in Japan, and we have the um, we have many craftsmen working to make jewelry. But we really have best facility, and we take a lot of hours and making sure that our quality is best out there. Our teams, you know, team members, all proud of um, being able to sell Mikimoto product, you know, the best out there, and it, it's the I think that kind of helps the the company right to keep on making what we feel is the best product and i think the customer sees that you know it's you're not going to find anything like mikimoto pearls it's 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 best out there i think yeah and you know tiffany is also very much Mm -hmm. in the high quality pearl Mm -hmm. jewelry game Mm -hmm. how do your sales associates speak to customers who are looking Mm -hmm. at both brands mikimoto we're only on a prestigious areas in the most prestigious cities. So say for instance, New York City, you know, we have Tiffany, we have other jewelers and they all have a very good quality pearl products, but there are no other company, no other jeweler that has the same amount of um, pearl jewelries. We're very um, specifically um, focused on pearl products. The quality point of view too, but also the um, amount of uh, selections that we have 
is it's just not comparable. So what happens is it's it's very very um very often we get customers coming in suggested by the the jewelers to come to our store for pearl jewelry. You know we also do the same too. If customer comes into our store and if they're looking for non-pearl jewelry, you know then we would um advise them to. Go to your other jewelers, mm-hmm. and we kind of do the same thing. So I think we have um, we we all have respect for each other. Um, being the top jewelers, most likely when uh, customers do compare with other companies, they 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 usually come back to us. You know, a yeah. remarkable thing happened during and after the pandemic. Jewelry sales actually went through the roof, and some people even dubbed last year as the year of jewelry. And this year, jewelry sales are expected to grow, but not nearly as aggressive as last year. Mm-hmm. What was Mickey Moto's business like in the last two two plus years? Obviously, when the pandemic hit, you know, we were forced to close our store. Right. We closed our um factory. We closed our office. So there were a good couple of months that we couldn't do anything. But after that, once we opened our uh, business, we have been having the best um, sales. So like last year, we had the best sales year ever. And we're continuing to to have the best sales. So like, for instance, last last three months, say, I'm averaging um, 30% increase over last year. Mm-hmm. You know, people talk about recession, and I also worry about recession. My base case scenario is that, you know, we're going to see some kind of uh, really hit recession maybe next year, early next year. But as far as what I'm seeing, we're doing better than ever. And I see customers wanting our products. So I have no concerns, at least for this holiday season. The more of an issue is that we have shortage of pearls and that, that's a huge headache. So yeah. what's happening is, you know, we, we have hard time, you know, um, procuring pearls, but the demand is just increasing. So, you know, if I can get hold on hold of the product, I'm sure, you know, I have no concerns. So what do you yeah. have to do in cases like that? If the demand is is strong and the supply mm-hmm. is, is not as strong, do you have to go through pearl dealers or is there, there are other ways around it? There really isn't any other way around it. So basically put, you know, it, it's a pure, you know, demand. And if the demand is strong, but if we can't, get as much pearls. Um, it, it's what it is. We we basically have to limit our product, you know, the sales. And uh, we don't, we never play around with the quality of our pearls. Right. So we have less pearls to sell. That That's just what's happening right now. Would you have to raise the prices? We are raising prices right now because of, um, it's not just us, but like, I think the pearls in general in the industry, because there's less pearls and there's so much demand, prices are increasing. And yes, we have been increasing price and probably that will continue. You know, just go back to the pandemic, as stores remain closed during the pandemic, e-commerce mm-hmm. was a crucial channel for keeping sales up, communicating mm-hmm. with customers and forging a sense of community around the brand. How did Mikimoto enhance its digital engagement during that period? Basically by January, you know, we, we started to hear like in China in December, you know, about these COVID cases. And as we started to hear the surge of COVID cases in the other part, parts of the world, uh, we 
quickly shifted our strategy. Um, we first re evaluated our business and asked ourselves, how can we best service our end customers in the worst situation that we can think of? You know, we, we weren't sure how bad it was going to get. I think back then people were more optimistic and didn't really think that we're going to go close the stores and mm -hmm. it's going to go halt. But still, we, we did look into that. What we decided to do is, you know, basically we, we thought about our customers. So our customer is the end customers. And also we have wholesale um, business as well. So we were also thinking about our wholesale accounts. You know, how do we service our wholesale accounts so that they can service our end clients for our retail stores or for our e-commerce sales, e-commerce department? You know, we thought about how do we... Um, service our customers. You know, we, we do have new customers, but we also have existing customers. And we thought about how people would react. You know, some people will probably not want to go into the store and obviously would want to um, communicate through, say, emails or Zoom or whatever it is, but we wanted to make sure we have the best solution possible so that we can communicate with the customers and provide support. What we've done is we basically developed materials to, to support that and also the logistics to support that. So we focused on creating the environment to support all of our teams so that they can work from home, but have the ability to support any customer inquiry in any ways so that we can keep in touch with the customers. And I think we were one of the earlier brands to resume the operation and open up the uh, e-commerce site. Mm -hmm. I think we were the first um, earlier brands to adopt um, out of boutique um, white glove service in the, in the industry. And that's because we were prepared um, when we were, you know, when we had our stores closed, when office was closed, everybody worked from home, but they had no time to waste. We were all busier than ever to um, create an environment to support the customers. And I think that ultimately helped and support our EC site, mm -hmm. as well as retail to support the customer needs and ultimately um, end up with the, uh, the best sales in, um, in Mickey Motor America's history. Because we were focusing on, we weren't focusing on EC specifically. We were just focusing on how can we meet our customers' needs in a difficulty. And that holistic approach, um, you know, it, it's an omni-channel approach, but like we really looked into that and devoted our um, energy to that. That's great. You know, young consumers are investing in jewelry more than ever as they aim to buy less, buy better post-pandemic. So with this, they're ushering in a new era of jewelry consumption that brands are adapting to their designs, to their marketing and their business models. How is Mickey Moto appealing to younger audiences? We feel that pearl jewelry is um, generation agnostic. We maintain the importance and relevance of pearls regardless of age and gender. You know, we, we do see that pearls in general do come and go. And right now, yes, we do see the resurgence, uh, resurgence especially from the younger audience. I think our uh, core selection always um, satisfied older generations, you know, like the, the basic necklaces and stuff. Right. But for younger generation, 
what we have been doing, or recently we collaborated with Comme des Garçons, uh, we basically challenged the traditional perception of feminine beauty of pearls by combining the masculine design elements, such as chains, studs, fangs, and safety pins. You know, this, I think, gave our younger generation a new perspective of pearls. And I think it probably matched the values of the uh, young generations. Also, last year, um, we launched a new collection called Passion Noir. Mm-hmm. And again, this is um, designed to be worn by men and w- women. It basically features a Black South Sea culture pearl set in Black rhodium jewelry, which is uh, very different from our past designs. You know, this collection is genderless, but we feature um, male models in our campaigns. I think this approach really appeals to the younger audience. And, you know, again, younger audience, they know Pearl's been around for, for many, many years. I mean, historically, I think if they can see how they utilize it or, you know, then I think they'll, they'll appreciate it. And I think our approach um, really did get into their, um, you know, appeal to the younger generations and our analytics, it also um, supports the uh, phenomenon you know, we sell to Gen X and Gen Y cohorts equally to that of um, older, you know, X and boomers. And what's interesting that I see is um, younger generation spends less time on the website, still purchase the same amount. Hmm. So I think younger generations, uh, they're clear on what they want. So when they feel that the pearls are um, relevant, and if they like the pearls, they come to our website, and they don't waste their time. They just, you know, decide quickly and they, they buy our products. I'm sure you like that. No, it's, it's great because like, you know, I, I told you in the beginning that, you know, we think pearls are for all ages, but it is a fact that people thought it was more for older, mature. Um, right. But now, you know, we, we are really seeing younger generations, um, you know, wearing um, pearl necklaces and pearl jewelry. And, um, we're very, very happy to see, you know, that that trend that is that coming back. And consumers are also becoming more discerning with their spending decisions. They're demanding higher standards of social responsibility from brands. Mm-hmm. And many say that because pearls are the only gemstones born from living creatures, mm-hmm. they are eco-friendly gems used in the creation of sustainable jewelry. Others mm-hmm. have argued differently. Are so mm-hmm. are cultured pearls good for the environment? How we put it would be that Mikimoto, we have to work with the oysters to um, produce our products. We have to make sure that our oysters are happy and healthy in order for us to um, culture excellent quality pearls. That comes with healthy environment. You know, we've always been very conscious about environment because of the, that fact that we need to have um, sound environment to um, produce uh, high quality pearls. In um, back in um, 2000, year 2000, you know, I talked to you about the, uh, we have a lab. Right. And um, Mikimoto lab, they're always in search of um, how to better culture pearl. On one of the research, they found out that, um, there was an original strain of um, oysters, Akoya oysters, 
uh, still left in one of the southern small islands. Nowadays, most of the oysters um, are crossbred with other oysters. And although they make it, they make the oysters stronger against like disease and you know, viruses, Mikimoto tend to want to try to keep the original oysters um, strain. So when we found that, found out that um, there was a place that still has the original strain of oysters, we decided to work with the uh, local people there and uh, secure the whole island. We basically started a new farm and we deployed zero emission solution for the farm. And it was the first in the um, pro farm industry. So that kind of tells you how we are very conscious about trying to keep the environment as, as best as possible or, you know, without any um, changes. And also um, in 2004, our lab actually created world's first organic-based water quality environment monitoring system using Akoya oysters. Mm-hmm. Basically, what we've done is we put sensor to the oysters. It analyzes the, uh, the shell movement, which allows us to detect abnormalities. If, if there's less oxygen in the ocean, you know, we will f- see that through their um, movement. We also have other sensors too, like, you know, temperature sensors and all that. So basically we're able to actually um, monitor the condition of where the oyster is, that would allow us to, to um, see what's changing the environment and what we need to do to keep the environment sound. It's not like we've started to work on ESG in the recent years. It, it's, it's been something that we have been doing for many years um, because we're, uh, we know that oysters need the right environment. So Mikimoto has retail stores across U.S., Europe, and Asia. Do the design aesthetics of all your stores tell a specific story about the brand? It, it's basically our stores are inspired by ocean. So we just opened up New York um, City flagship stores, uh, um, a new one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's basically in the same spot, um, but we um, we opened up a new store. If you go in, you will. Um, you'll have like a sense of um, feel as if you're moving through the ocean from deep within to the surface. Mm -hmm. So what happens is um, when you go into the entrance, you'll see um, the first floor, it's like blue color. You know, we use like traditional kimono fabric and wallpapers and stuff to kind of give you an impression that you're in a deeper ocean. But if you go up, you'll see that the whole floor becomes lighter You'll see like the glass ornaments, which resembles the bubbles um, going, you know, from deep within to wow. the surface. But every, every, or, uh, every furniture, the walls or furniture or, um, or chandeliers, everything has some kind of um, resemblance to the ocean. The customers really um, appreciate that because when they come to our store, they're like, they're like amazed with the, uh, the store, it, it is very unique. Basically, that's what we do with all of our stores. We have some kind of um, motif um, from ocean and you'll see like the waves and pearl designs embedded into all of the structure throughout the stores. It has, sounds like it has a very calming effect on the customer. 
Yes, yes. Um, that that is so true because our customer, they're usually they tell us they're they're very comfortable being on in our stores. You teamed up with avant-garde fashion house Comme des Garçons for a gender mm-hmm. fluid capsule collection of pearl necklaces. Mm-hmm. The message behind the partnership is that pearls are for everyone and challenging mm-hmm. the status quo by making something normally associated with feminine dress, something worn by men. Mm-hmm. This is pretty forward thinking for a traditional brand like Mickey Moto. How did these seemingly opposite brands come together for this collaboration? We were thinking it was a matter of time before that happened because it does look opposite. But when you think about it, our founder, Kokichi, he basically introduced entirely new culture with the uh, cultured pearl. And his dream was to dress, um, you know, adorn the necks of all women around the world with pearls, which wasn't the case before. He was doing something that was totally new. Rie Kawakubo, she also revolutionized the industry with her creativity. Right. So I think both Mikimoto and Comde Garçon kind of shares that um, aim of the revolutionizing um, the existing tradition or uh, norms. And we also want to um, explore a sense of originality. I think that's what brought two together. You know, we, we Comde Garçon... Mikimoto were both original, but were also um, challenging the norm. That was a very good match, I think. I think that's one of the reasons why when these two brands got together, we were able to um, come up with great products. And we've seen the rise of pearls as a bona fide male accessory over the past couple of years. You know, Major League Baseball players are flaunting strings of pearls around their necks on the field. Rappers mm. and pop culture icons like Drake and Harry Styles are popularizing them. And so are some Hollywood actors. And this opens up a whole new wave of opportunities for Mikimoto. What do you think spurred on this trend? And are you seeing more men shopping for pearl jewelry for themselves? Definitely see a lot of men coming into our stores and buying pearl jewelry now. I think people are starting to realize that pearls are versatile. You know, before people thought it was pearls are for women, but the the genderless fashion trend, I think also helped. And they're finding pearls actually do match to the fashion uh, for men. And which has been the case for, you know, all throughout the history, you know, like I, you know, had an example of a Maharaja or kings and queens, the riches back then wore pearls. You know, it kind of like shifted and people thought pearls were for women, but I think it's actually coming back to um, what it was. Even for men, you know, it, it's, it's their, uh, the simplicity of the shape and the color of the pearls, it will match anything. And it's a versatile. So it, it I think that's where the, uh, the men are, you know, starting to feel that pearls are something that they would love to wear. And it's, it, it feels new too, I guess. So um, these celebrities, you know, I think that's what they want to, um, you know, they want something that feels new. Yeah, I was just saying, earlier this year, you announced Chinese actor and singer Song Wei Long as its first male global brand ambassador. So is that all part of Mikimoto's effort to reinterpret how we think about pearls and breaking stereotypes? We do um, use a lot of male ambassador. You know, we have a lot of, you know, relationship with the celebrities over the years. And um, what we do is when we find a brand ambassador, which 
they have genuine passion for Mikimoto. Mm-hmm. And if we feel that they're a good fit to represent our brand, uh, we partner with them. And with the resurgence of、um, resurgence, but also the, the young audiences that's coming into、um, to the pearls, I think he was the right fit as an ambassador. And our head office has decided to work with him. And you know, we're seeing more fashion labels getting into the beauty business to boost the bottom line and brand equity long term. It's a pretty crowded marketplace and really a difficult sector to crack. In 2020, Mikimoto ventured into the beauty market itself with its first ever perfume, a gender neutral scent. I think you call it an olfactory expression of the brand story.、Mm-hmm. Why did Mikimoto decide to create a scent and how does it convey? Mikimoto's brand story. So Mikimoto, we've actually been in cosmetics for many decades. I'm not sure the exact date, but possibly we were already doing it back in the 40s.、Hmm. So,、um, so for us, it's it's not actually like something new, but it's just something that we really haven't、uh, put our effort in, I guess. But We were always interested in the multi-sensory aspects of、um, client experiences, and we have been working on perfume for many years. And we kind of felt that it was the right time to introduce the brand's first、um, fragrance. And you know, just like jewelry, fragrance evokes emotion and parallels the beauty and emotion felt in wearing. Treasured piece of jewelry, so we think it's the right product match to our jewelry selection. Our customer really loves our、um, fragrance as well. It's you know, just just like our um, jewelry. Um, I think our fragrance has a, a beautiful smell, which is very comforting. And、um, for us, we we just thought it was the right product match. That that's something that we had to do. So, Kentaro, my final question is the luxury item question, which I ask all my guests. Okay. So, if you、okay. were stranded on a deserted island and you can only have one single luxury item with you, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of air or water transportation to get you off that island, or anything that requires mobile service so you can call someone to get you off that island. It's just you, lots of sand, palm trees,、mm. and. Miles and miles of ocean. What would that one single luxury item you would like to have with you? Okay, so so it doesn't need to be like luxury, luxury, right? Like it's、well, your own interpretation of it. Okay, all right. You know what? Actually, this is a easy question for me.、Oh. Um, you know, I work in the sparkles and blings of the world, but I'm an avid outdoor person. From that, my answer. Is kind of boring, but I would bring a knife with me. You know, I've、uh, I've trekked through the jungles of southern islands of Japan. I've been, you know, I trek in the mountain ranges over ten thousand feet weeks at a time.、Um, actually, this summer, I was I was in、uh, upstate New York in a small island, camping there for about a week.、Mm-hmm. I could easily I can easily get my mind around and realistically think about. What that means, you know, being stranded on a desert island, and you know, 
if there's like a magical medicine that would work for anything, I would bring that, but I don't think there is, <laughs> you know, I don't think that exists. So um, I would definitely choose a knife, you know, it would keep me alive. Kentaro Nishimura, Chief Operating Officer at Mikimoto America. Thank you so much for joining me on the luxury item. Thank you so much. I, I really had a fun time talking to you, Scott. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.